Uh, last weekend, Sarah took uh, our girls to Louisiana, as I mentioned last week, that she was going to do. And what that meant for me is I just did a lot of work around the house and, and things like that. But I also got to watch a movie, which I don't do a lot because our TV is usually dominated by our kids. And so I watched a movie called Mudbound. Um, Mudbound was, uh, has, been award, or has been nominated for a lot of, movie, a lot of awards this year. Um, and so that's where I heard about it. I was watching the Academy Awards a few weeks ago. Mudbound is a, was a book that's been adapted to a, to a movie. And it's a story about, primarily about two men who uh, are raised in the, the same rural Mississippi Delta town. And both these men, uh, young men, go off to war in World War II in the 1940s. And uh, the story really is, is much more about their re-entry into society and into life in the Delta uh, after the World War. And what's, what's really interesting, what the, what the story is showing us, is that uh, while these two men experienced really a lot of the same stuff abroad and the perils of war and uh, the harrowing experiences there, the story really, that's where the similarities end because upon re-entry into Mississippi, their lives look drastically different. Um, <clears throat> and that is because... Uh, of no real surprise, one of the men uh, was black, Ronell Jackson, uh, sorry, Ronzel Jackson was black, and Jamie McCallan was white. Uh, Ronzel's family worked on a farm that Jamie McCallan's family owned. And those, that sort of sets up the tension that the movie portrays in a number of different ways. But what's really beautiful and what this movie picks up on is that, that Jamie, even though he was afforded many privileges because of the color of his skin, um, he really enters into Ronzel's world in a way that, that is beautiful. Because he recognizes that, that we are at heart, we're the same. We're the same. We went and fought in the same war. We have these same memories that we would rather forget. And we have these same dreams of this, this life that we hope to have here back at home. And so the, the story is a development of their friendship. And, and really, uh, the friendship is portrayed in disturbing ways even. I've got to be honest about that. But it does show us what we all hope that true friendship is. It's a friendship that's costly. It's a friendship that does the right thing even at, at great odds. It goes to great lengths to do the right thing. It's a... It's a kind of friendship that puts the needs and the cares of another ahead of self. And what's awesome and what's really beautiful is that in the passage we're about to read, we see that those ideals about what real friendship is, they don't, they're not new to that book. They're not things that the movie producers discovered in that book and decided to make a movie out of. Those ideals come from God. They are in God's heart. And in this passage tonight, we see God's heart on display for what it looks like to love neighbor. What it looks like to be in community, to be the kind of community that does those things, that loves at great cost, that does the right thing, and that puts others ahead of self. So that's the, that's the setting here. We're going to look at Leviticus verses 9 through 18 together. So let's give attention to God's word. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. 
And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, you shall not, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your Lord, I am the Lord, of, of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him, the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Uh, love and holiness, those words, they sound very spiritual, they sound kind of sentimental and sweet, uh, but this passage really challenges that notion. It challenges the notion that, that love and holiness are abstract realities to be aspired to, and it puts those concepts into very tangible, concrete terms. That holiness is attained not by like kind of escaping this world and flying out of the world into kind of a monkish departure from relationships. But holiness is tangible. God is saying, I am holy, and here's what it looks like for you to be holy. Namely, to love the people around you in all these various ways. So holiness and love flow together. They're part of the same thing. In this passage, it gives us the means by which we love neighbor in five different areas. And what I want to suggest tonight is that if you are a Christian, if you're professing to follow Jesus, then, then you must love this way. Then you must love this way. It's not a take it or leave it kind of thing. This is the ethic of how we are to, to pursue relationships around us. Now look, we will do it failingly to be sure. But God is saying, this is what it looks like to be my people, to be set apart. When I come near to you and you're brought near to me, this is what that looks like. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you're off the hook. Just kidding. Here's what I would say. As you consider this, think to yourself, isn't that the kind of community, isn't that the kind of world that I want to help create? Aren't those the things that I want to be about at my deepest level? And if they're not, I challenge you to consider why. What else is it that you think life offers and holds out to you that is a more beautiful picture of reality than this list right here? So let's look down at it together. Um, before I jump in, a guy named Kevin DeYoung, a pastor who used to be in Michigan, now in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, a lot of this stuff um, is from him. He's really helpful. I just want to mention that. The first thing we see here is that God calls us to love others with our possessions. And we see that in verses 9 and 10. And the principle that he gives out here in talking about the gleanings and leaving things in your field is that, that when you love your neighbor as yourself, that will necessarily impact 
what you do with your stuff. I realize that, that in large measure, when I say this tonight, when we look at the concept of, of taking our money or our possessions and giving them away, I realize that in large part, I'm just planting seeds for a life that isn't yours yet. Some of you are working work study, which is like beans. <laughs> Here, here's a few dollars. Thanks for your help. Uh, some of you have jobs, but in reality, most of you are not making substantial income right now. But these principles, I really do, I hope they function like seeds that get planted in the soil of your heart, which one day, hopefully, will bear fruit. And what we see in this is, is God is saying to his people back then, and very much to his people today, that you have to love others with some of what you have. You have to love others with some of what you have. And that's what the whole gleanings thing is, that you're to leave margins at the edges of your field where you don't collect the crops because there are poor people in your community they're going to come out there and get those crops and then even then when you go out and harvest as you drop some along the way don't pick them up intentionally leave them behind because the lesser people in your community will need that now the obvious differences between then and now is in large measure we don't live in an agrarian society and agrarian societies these days are dominated by machines, and they are incredibly accurate, and there ain't, no, ain't much left at the end of the day. But the principle is nonetheless very clear. That as God's people, you are called to intentionally think about your money in such a way that you realize it's not all mine. That my money is not all mine. It's really not mine at all. That God has provided and he's saying you're to use part of it this way. What we have to recognize in this is that this kind of gleanings principle here, that this is, this is a command in addition to what God would say elsewhere, that you're to give a tithe of your, of your income or back then of your harvest. So that means that God commanded him, you're to give the first tenth of everything you bring in, you're to give that back to me. Okay? And for them, that meant you brought it to the temple and the priests would eat it and use it, whatever. In our day, that the principle remains that we take that portion, the first fruits of our income, and we give it to the church. And then God's saying, and in addition, you've got to care for the poor people among you. You've got to take care of those who, for whatever reason, they can't make a living. They can't make ends meet. They can't provide for themselves. They can't put food on the table. God's people are to deliberately plan their lives so that we have extra to, live, uh, to, to leave to those around us. We have, to, we have to hold our money loosely, is what this is saying. This means we have to have a pattern of regular giving. That means that if, if you're in a job one day that has periodic bonuses or, or kind of extra money, look, the temptation, because I'm in a profession that gives lavish bonuses, let me tell you, um, the temptation is that when you get that extra, then you think like, oh, awesome, I'm going to go get that thing that I want. Okay? Now, I'm not going to come up here and, and bind your conscience and make you say you absolutely have to give it all away. But I at least want to introduce the, the idea that when you get extra, it shouldn't just be, oh, I'm going to go get what I want, but I've received more, so this is awesome. Now I can give some more. 
I can meet some needs of people around me in a way that maybe I haven't during the regular course of life. I saw this principle very beautifully last, last year. In fact, as I was studying this, uh, this scenario came to mind and I tapped into my email and it happened this week last year. And I got this email uh, from a friend in town. She's actually a TU grad. She said this. I just copied the email. It said, do you have any students needing slash wanting scholarships for summer conference? I said, no, thanks. See you later. No. And she said, as I'm writing this, I'm realizing I may be offering too late, but we'd love to help sponsor some. We have up to $5,000 we'd be happy to share with the students there. Yes, I know petroleum engineering jobs are ridiculous, but someone has to do it, right? Ridiculous. <laughs> what was she saying? God gave us this extra money in the form of a big, big bonus. I don't even know how much the bonus was, but she said, here's $5,000 if you want it. And so many of you last year went to summer conference. If you went and received a scholarship of some sort, it's because she wrote that email. She's saying, I have this extra It's the gleanings. It's on the side. Do you need it? That's what God's saying here, that we love others with our possessions. Secondly, we see that we love them with our words. We love people with our words. To love is to tell the truth. We're told not to steal in this passage, verses 11 and 12. And the context suggests that stealing is kind of this bigger aspect of dealing falsely with one another. And and the passage gives us two primary places where that is played out, in business and in courts. Okay, so let's talk about business on the front end. When you're committed to loving your neighbor, that means that you pursue truth in all kinds of transactions. You pursue truth in all sorts of transactions. The Bible elsewhere elsewhere says that you you have just balances, that your scales weigh out the same, that you're not trying to rip people off in the the way that you do your business. It, It applies to things like advertising, that you don't go advertise your products to be one thing when in reality you know there's something else. For accountants, it means you don't cook the books. You don't fudge numbers or or transpose some numbers so you can make things balance. Like, we've got to be honest in the way we do it. In society, kind of social capital relies on these kinds of things. And when, when people start to not do that, when they start to cheat the system or to cheat their company or whatever, you don't always know right away. But if and when that comes, the trickle-down effect of that is massive. And it usually impacts far more than just that person, right? Because if it's a little bit of of embezzlement here, it's a little bit of number fudging there, and all of a sudden it's not just a $50,000 issue, it's a $500,000 issue. And it's not just you that gets fired, but they've got to lay off your whole department. And so to love others is to enter into that honestly. Uh, just today, I was reading a headline about um, this case that the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, that they took up um, against a company called, uh, I think, Theranos or Thesanos or something like that. Um, and, and the woman who is at the head of this company, her name was Elizabeth Holmes. And her business partner slash lover, which I found out, uh, Sonny Belwani, they had this elaborate scheme where they... They raised more than $700 million from people to build this kind of biotech company. And what they were selling people on was the idea that they were making these real portable um, blood analyzers. 
that what would happen is you would go to a Walgreens or to CVS or some kind of minute clinic, and they would take a prick of blood and a few drops, and it would they put it on this little piece of paper thing and put it in this little machine, and it would give you almost instantaneous results of all of your blood levels and all this stuff. Now, there's a couple problems with what they did. The first one of which is that as they were going into the Walgreens and the CVS and the Minute Clinics, they weren't actually taking anything that they had made. They were taking other companies' equipment in there and calling it their own. That's a problem. Another thing that's a problem is that as they were out kind of raising money, part of that $700 million they raised, they were lying about who all was using their product. And they were saying that the Department of Defense was using their blood machines over in the, the, Afghan, uh, the war in Afghanistan and kind of all these places where, in reality, it would have been almost impossible to verify that, which they knew. But they're saying they're doing that and that they were supposed to have $100 million in revenue in 2014. You want to know how much they had? $100,000 in revenue, not $100 million. That's... Uh, that's six zeros less. It was dishonest. And so today, the SEC came down on them and said, basically, your company's done. All the employees are fired. It's dissolved. The thing is over. All because a couple people at the top said, we're going to go get rich. We're going to go do what we want to do. And the trickle down was massive. Look, y'all, if you're heading into industry at all, if you're heading into business, if you're heading into engineering, if you're heading into teaching, if you're going to be a stay-at-home mom, whatever it is you're going to do, you have to have priorities in the way that you pursue these things. I would suggest these, and they're all P's, because Kevin DeYoung is a nerd. First one, principles. You have to be committed to ethical, biblical principles in the way you do your work. Second is people. You have to consider the worth and the dignity and the value of the people you're interacting with and employing. Third, product. You have to be selling an honest product. You have to be offering something that the people need or at least being honest about what you're offering. And fourthly and lastly is profit. It's okay and even necessary to make a profit. If you flip those things around you get into trouble. You get into a violation, oftentimes, of ethical standards. If profit is the driving concern of your life or of your business, if that is the number one thing, then you're headed for a a difficult path. I'm not saying it's impossible. The whole financial system is driven by returning value to shareholders. But If you set your life up to where profit maximization is the most important thing for you, watch out. Because there's temptation lying close. What about the courtroom? It says you need to be honest in your dealings with people. Everything in that culture depended on witnesses. They didn't have DNA samples. They didn't have secret video surveillance cameras. They didn't have all of this. Everything was about um, telling the truth in the courtroom. And so, look, our our world is different. We have whole court systems that are set up which function largely independent of our lives, hopefully. Um, But here's a question for us. Do we interact honestly in the court of public opinion? As we're here at, at TU, as I'm kind of out in the community in Tulsa, 
Are we interacting with people in such a way that our lives give out the flavor of honesty? Is that what people sense when they deal with us? Is that true of us? Are we representing ourselves to others in an honest and true way? Or are we always just kind of creating this facade of who we want others to think we are? And we're turning our lives a little bit this way so we can look a little bit better over there. We're saying this one thing just a little bit differently here so that we can be perceived this certain way. Who are you bringing into the public realm? This also affects how it is that we talk about others. Let's be real, let's be real straight about this. This affects our gossip. If we're to be truth tellers, if God's people are to be characterized by speaking true things, friends, then that has to mean that we are not people who sit around and just stir the pot about juicy news that we heard. That means that you're not always just sitting around talking about who went on a date or who didn't go on a date. That means that you're not just always sitting around talking about the weird or funny thing that that person did and laughing at them. That means that we're not trying to live our lives in such a way to where we get bigger by pushing others down and making them feel smaller. Gossip is insidious. And it's a form of lying, of, of, per, of perpetu- perpetrating, perpetuating things which may or may not be true. But the point is, they don't matter. It's not your business. So God's people are to be people who deal in honesty. Love demands we're careful with our words. Thirdly, it demands that we, are, uh, that we love others with our actions. The, the verse uh, in 13 14, the word it uses is oppression. It says we're not to oppress others. So here's what oppression is. Oppression is not giving a fair wage, an appropriate wage, for an appropriate amount of work. So back then, the context would have been that, that they had day laborers, people who would come to the, the town square, to the gates of the, of the village, and they would stand there basically to offer themselves to work. You see something like this actually today um, in, in bigger cities. And I haven't seen it a lot in Tulsa, but if you go to like a Lowe's or Home Depot where they know that early in the morning you'll have you know, people heading out to their job sites and getting material, there will be people standing around basically waiting to get hired for the day. Well, that's the situation. And so when, when the command comes to not oppress people, it's saying, if you bring these people on to work for you, you agree to a wage and you pay them that wage. That's not rocket science. But it could be easily exploited with these people because, look, they're in need. If you say in the New Testament the, the term was a denarius, if you would say, hey, I'll, I'll pay you a denarius, come work out in the fields for a day. And if you got to the end of the day and you're kind of looking out there in the fields or whatever it is and you're saying, yeah, I, I see a lot of stuff on the ground still. You didn't do a very good job. Here's half a denarius. That's oppression. You were not giving them what they agreed to. Now, it was also on the worker to do the job, but you see how that could have been exploited between the master and the worker. And that's what God's saying is you are not to be like that. You're to be people of your word and you don't oppress people who are in lower positions. The broader, the broader principle here is that you're not to take advantage of the weak. He says you don't curse the deaf. Why is that? 
Because they don't know when you're cursing them. You can't exploit people. You can't damage them in a way that they really have no power and control over. He says you shouldn't put a stumbling block in front of the blind person. Why? Because they can't see it. God's saying you're to be different than the other people. You don't take advantage of people. You don't oppress them. You look out for the cares of the weak. You enter in and you help them. You don't exploit them and, and make their burden heavier. Fearing the Lord, it says, that means that we do what's right even when no one else is watching. That's what it looks like to love people with our actions. Fourthly, we love them with our judgments, verse 15 and 16. We're back in the courts again. So, uh, in that society, in, in Israel of that day, uh, I've talked about this before, but Israel was what's called a theocracy. Now, we live in a democracy where the, the voice of the people is what rules through elected representatives. Theocracy was that God was at the center of this nation-state called Israel. And what he said, like these laws right here, these were the constitution of Israel. So the court system for them was much more enmeshed in their daily life. It wasn't what we think of where there's like a court down there and it's formal and you have these very strict proceedings. The courts back then were basically that the elders or the rulers in the church and of the religious society, those were the people who tried the cases. So, so it was very likely and very possible that, that you knew the very people who were going to be trying your case. They may know your family. They may have kids who play with your kids. Whatever it may be, your lives were enmeshed, and they were all up in this together. I was thinking about this, and I thought, you know, it's, it's kind of like what I've seen through the years here at TU. Um, many times now, actually, I've had two students, usually two or three students, come to me who are in some sort of, some sort of fight, some sort of disagreement that they just can't get out of. It's going round and round, and it's not getting better, and usually it's getting worse. And they'll come to me or I'll offer them and say, like, look, I'd be willing to sit down with y'all and just try to figure out what's happening and where you're missing each other and how we move forward from here. And so we'll sit around and we'll talk. But the difficulty for that for me as kind of the judge figure in this is that I know the people here and I know their backstories. I know all the other places in their life where they've done wrong things or where they've been dishonest or where they've acted this way when they should have acted that way. And so, but in this particular situation, I've got to come to the table, as it were, being impartial, turning a blind eye to any sort of prior baggage, knowledge, or anything, and seek to be just and to execute justice rightly. And God says, that's what you're to be like as my people. You're not supposed to be impartial. You're not supposed to be partial either to the rich person or the poor person. You're to hear the people on their terms. Make good decisions about this. Pursue justice that is blind. Uh, this past Monday, I was running on the treadmill before I realized how hurt my back was. And I was listening to a podcast called Truth's Table. Truth's Table is a podcast of uh, three black women, so basically just like me. And uh, they talk about life and theology and all kinds of stuff. Um, usually very interesting topics. They'll have guest speakers on and kind of interview them and do this whole deal. 
Well, anyway, the one I was listening to on Monday was the first episode from season two, uh, which started in January. And they were kind of given updates on what they're doing in life. And one of the women on there, whose name is Michelle Higgins, uh, these women all live in St. Louis. Uh, her name is Michelle Higgins. She's part of a church there called South City. Uh, her dad is the pastor. His name is Mike Higgins. Maybe if you're from St. Louis, you might know that. But anyway, Michelle was talking about how in the, the winter she got, she took a new job with this initiative or this nonprofit called the Bail Project. B-A-I-L, not like Baal from the Bible. So the Baal Project. And uh, she was talking about it and it got me curious. So I went online and looked more into it. Here's what the Baal Project is. Here's what Baal is. Bail is an amount of money that it, if you get arrested for doing something, right, our, our court system is based on the presumption of innocence until proven guilty, right? So in our court system, you show up, you've been arrested for something, they process you, um, and then you, you sit in jail usually until your trial comes or until you post bail. And bail is an amount of money that either you or a family member or a friend or a bail company that you borrow that money from they post the bail, they give it to the courts as a sort of pledge that like, hey, I'm coming back. I'm coming back for my money, but in the meantime, you get to go home, okay, and, and await your trial. Well, as I looked into the bail project, what they have found is that there are tons of people, tons of people, and very much disproportionately uh, to people of, uh, of lower economic strata, in different races, um, historically oppressed races in our country, that the court, uh, the jails are filled with these people who don't have the money to post bail, and they don't have family members who can post bail, and they don't have a network of people who can post bail. So they're literally sitting in prison, quote-unquote innocent, but they can't get out to await their trial. So what happens is they'll often sit there for weeks and months and even years for something that the court has not tried them to be guilty of yet. And if you can imagine what that does, it disrupts their their lives, they lose jobs, their families start to fall apart. Like the trickle down of that is huge. And so what Michelle's project is is that they kind of crowdsource and take donations for bail money. And they go around and hear different people's stories and they right, gather facts and talk to their family members. And they post bail for people so they can get out and continue to be productive members of society. And they await their trial date in which they get the bail money back and the organization turns around and uses that money elsewhere. It's brilliant. It's pursuing justice. And God's saying, that's the kind of stuff that my people are to be about. We're to find the places in our world where injustice is reigning. And if you are following Jesus, you are to enter into that place with him. Because he cares about that stuff. It's at the core of his heart. He is for the weak and oppressed. Lastly, God is calling us to love others with our attitude, with our hearts in verse 17 and 18. Up until this point in the passage... Religious people, maybe some of you, those of you who, who like the feeling of accomplishing things, you have loved this because it's just a, it's a four things, five things, boxes to check. Yes, I, I'm going to do that. I'm going to work on this and I'm going to go down through here. And it feels pretty good. 
And then you get to verse 17, and there are three words in there which should haunt you. What does it say? In your heart. In your heart. This passage is acknowledging the reality that you can do everything we've talked about so far and just be putting on a show. You can just be doing the actions of it. You can live a life that looks a certain way on the outside, but on the inside, it's a totally different picture. Doing the law, checking boxes. But actions aren't all that's required. And we know this because... Lots of places in the New Testament, one in particular, Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is surrounded by a group of of Pharisees, and Pharisees were well-meaning people. They were box checkers. They had different color pins for all the different boxes, and they loved nothing more than to check those boxes with the appropriate colored pins. Some of you are feeling that right now. They sat around and they just gloried in the fact that they were doing it all so neat and systematically and organized. And they came to Jesus and they were going to test him. And one of them was a lawyer. And he said this, and I meant to put it up on the screen, but I didn't. The lawyer asked Jesus a question to test him. said, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What was Jesus doing there? He was saying what comes of first importance is the stuff that we can't see. It's the stuff that only you know. You have to love the Lord with your whole heart and with your whole soul and with your whole mind. You have to love him with all of your being. And then from that, you go love others. But you have to love God first. And so look, here's the question. Is, that, is this just another box on the list? Okay, I, I love people with my words and my actions, with my money. I do it over here, and then I love God. Great. It's not possible. Because loving God is actually not something that in and of ourselves we can drum up the volitional energy The desire to do. Why? Because scripture says our hearts are fundamentally set opposed to that. Paul says we do not love God. There is no one who loves God. There's no one who seeks after God. We all have turned and gone the other way. And so what's our hope of loving God? 1 John 1 9. Friends, you love because he first loved you. Loving God is a responsive act. We are responding to His initiative in loving us. And I would suggest that you will only ever love God. The only way that you will find yourself loving God is if you realize that in the gospel, God has already loved you at great cost to Himself. That He pursued justice in exactitude. That He loved us not just with words, but with actions. With the totality of His whole heart and soul and strength. How did He do that? In Jesus. At the cross. God shows us the extent of His love that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And so what that means for you is that 
The call for you to love God is not just a bald commandment. Go do that. It's saying, friends, you will only do it if you realize you've been loved first. You have to receive His love, which then we in turn respond to in love. John Bunyan, who is a a famous um, author, a Puritan, an English Puritan, he wrote um, Pilgrim's Progress and a number of other things. He says this, and I put it on the front of your bulletin. He says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but it gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly, and it gives us wings. Friends, don't you see that Jesus has, he's not lightening the commandment. He's saying, no, you are to love others. But I'm going to give you the very means by which you can do that. I'm going to give you myself. And I'm going to die so that your old self can die. And I'm going to be raised so that you can have a new life. And I'm going to do more than that. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to put it all the way inside of you. And those are going to be the very wings that carry you into loving others. Jesus gives you everything you need. He gives us everything that the law requires of us. That is good news. That's the gospel. That's what you have in him. Let's pray.